and I'm bringing two Bible readings this morning. The first is from Micah chapter 5, verses 2 to 4. But you, Bethlehem of Rapha, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Moving to Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 20. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when for the time, when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. I'm going to invite Jeff to... I'm going to speak to you this morning. I'd like to just pray for 
Father, we thank you that you speak to us at all times, but we ask particularly that you speak to us this morning, this Christmas morning, through Jesus. Just continue uh, with the, the readings uh, to Luke chapter 2. This is familiar to all of us, so it's just a matter of listening along. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. And so Joseph also went up to the town of Nazareth in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to, married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes in a ma- lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, then the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them up in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is a story which uh, uh, is very familiar to us about a great census that happened and uh, it catches up uh, with God's plan or God's plan catches up with this picture of uh, typical Roman administration uh, a coercive way of ruling Uh, the whole idea of the census was to determine how big the pie was and how to divide it up in this planned economy of Rome efficiency was everything Uh, I have a sermon illustration redefine the meaning of sermon illustrations uh, this morning. Um, You might be familiar with this uh, painting. It's a little bit hard to see in the sepia tones, but it's by uh, Peter Bruegel the the Elder uh, from the days of the Reformation from 1566, painted in the Netherlands. It's probably his own hometown. And what's remarkable about this picture is that it adopts a new style. Uh, Religious paintings up until now were quite... uh, kitsch, uh, if, you, if you can bear that, and uh, uh, quite stylized. But Bruegel presses into service the, the, uh, the common folk of his own world, and he's painting Luke chapter 2 for us. And you can see there uh, various figures. It's a busy scene painted on the diagonal there, uh, 
as people go about their, their uh, normal lives in, in a cold winter morning. This was 1566. The, uh, the coldest uh, winter on record was the previous year and many, many people died simply through lack of fuel. Uh, the emperor in those days was not uh, uh, Tiberius Caesar, it was a Spaniard, Philip II, who controlled all of Europe and had married the English Queen Mary. And he saw himself as a protector of the Church of Rome. And uh, so when the Netherlands were breaking away and starting to follow this new gospel of the New Testament, uh, to read the Bible for themselves and things like that, um, uh, the, the emperor took it upon himself to ratchet up the pressure and to tax the provinces mercilessly. And so I think Bruegel paints this painting because he, he thinks that these people have an affinity for the society of Bethlehem and uh, in the days of Christ. And he's not saying this is what it looked like, but he's saying this is what it felt like. This is the nature of, of it. If we look a little closer, there's little bunches of activity around this painting. And for instance, in the, uh, in the first corner, uh, we'll see a picture of some children playing. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, rough sketch style with their, their Christmas presents, if you like. And uh, there they are <coughs> in making fun out of the bleak cold. And there's men loading carts and people going about their business covered with snow. In the uh, centre plate, uh, right in the middle, you can't miss it in the larger one when we look at that again uh, later on, but uh, you see a wheel. Now, that's, this picture is full of symbolism. The, the wheel is the whole idea of the wheel of fortune uh, governed by the goddess Fortuna and it makes life random. But uh, this is a critique of that sort of view and Bruegel will not have us believe that uh, we're just experiencing bad luck in this bleak winter. But this wheel has fallen off, it doesn't spin, it has no bearing on the plight of these people. Uh, down in the foreground, um, oh sorry, there's also, a, you can't see it in this picture, but if you look at the larger picture again, there's a tavern which is actually a dead tree. And people are meeting, drinking in something that is dead. And Bruegel is saying, this is not where hope lies. Uh, in the background, there's another plate. Right up the back, uh, sorry, back one. Uh, I might have got out of order here. Um, there is a, a crumbling church. And uh, you can't see it on this slide, but if you look closely, there's a man with a bell there. He's a leper. And he's ringing the bell saying, keep away, keep away. Um, this is an unhealthy place, and it's a critique of the Catholic Church of the age. Um, that next slide, that's the, that's the picture. And uh, the next slide, of you notice the crest, uh, <coughs> on the, which is on the, the end, and it's the Habsburg Emperor, the, his line, that, that crest is the line of the Habsburg Empire. And they pinched that eagle on the crest that you can barely see there from the, the Roman it was the Roman eagle. In fact, they created a whole mythology that uh, these, these emperors were legitimated because they went back to Caesar and uh, uh, was uh, fictitious through Charlemagne to Caesar. And um, uh, so 
you can see how Bruegel is linking the story of Luke to his day. But then we come to the foreground and um, you see this figure of a man with a, he's actually got a saw over his shoulder and it's no guesses for who that is. And he's toting his, his ox and his donkey and there is a young maiden who is pregnant sitting on that ox and uh, this was capturing up the thoughts of Isaiah chapter 1 which was seen as a Christmas text that uh, goes like this, the ox knows its master's crib but Israel, the, the donkey, the, the ox knows its master's voice, the donkey knows its master's crib but Israel does not know, my people does not understand and uh, here's a, this is the, the issue that people are going about their business oblivious to the couple that come in. And as we peel back to the full picture again, we see in the background, just subtly, there's a red sun rising. And this is early dawn. And uh, Bruegel is saying the Reformation is happening. The, the truth is getting out. And despite the fact that things are so harsh, there will be a spring and winter will turn. And it's that picture that we have, which I hope you can keep with you. It's that sort of scene that we have in Luke chapter 2, where we have this, this picture of this coercive census being taken. Uh, but the irony that uh, Luke sees is that it manages through this census to bring this family. Joseph goes up from the town of Nazareth of Galilee to Bethlehem, the town of David, because that was his family town. And you see that that God is fulfilling his plan. Caesar thought he'd have a planned economy and he could bring about through coercive means the ideal state. But here, Luke knows that Caesar is actually a pawn in God's greater plan to bring about this fulfillment of his prophecy that this family and this son, this child would be born in Bethlehem as he had promised 800 years earlier. And then we get to the birth in, in verses 6 and 7, and it's remarkable that here we have this story of the birth of Christ, and we have 12 verses that follow talking about shepherds, and only two verses talking about the birth. It's like an anticlimax. And in a sense it really is, because the greater miracle is not the birth, but actually the creation of the child in the womb that's already happened nine months earlier. And uh, this is bound to happen, according to Luke. The birth happens. And then we move on to the witnesses of the birth. And we, <coughs> we spend a lot of time talking about their experience. And this is what Luke wants to tell us, is the real meaning of Christmas, is this witness to this child, is uh, what he's trying to say is important to him. And... Uh, in, in verse 8, we read that there are shepherds in the fields keeping watch over their flocks at night. Remarkably, these are the same fields around this town that King David would have been standing in. These are the same fields in which the sheep that are used in the temple for sacrifice, they're all owned by the priestly class. And uh, that's uh, not known to us, but that uh, would be known to the people of the age. And then all of a sudden, this angel of the Lord, we have a revelation that the angel of the Lord comes and obviously the, their jaws were dropping and their pipes were falling out of their mouths and he brings good news, the great joy of 
to all the people in this town. A saviour has been born and he is the Messiah, the Lord. <clears throat> he is the anointed one that was expected. He was also the Lord of Israel. And then he gives them a sign. So we have a revelation followed by a confirmation. And the idea of a sign in these days, these were things that you normally were given to prophets and to kings when God was going to do something. He'd give a confirmatory sign so that you could say that you know, when you see the smaller thing achieved, then the greater thing is bound to happen as well. If I can do the small one, I can do the great one. And then there is a celebration. And as they're, they're standing there gobsmacked and just being treated like kings, as it were, they, the curtains of heaven roll back and there is a military choir, the Lord of hosts, of armies. The armies of God are singing. And they're not so much praising God as saying, glory to God in the highest, I suppose that's a praise, and on earth peace to those on whom his favour rests. Now, there's more in that little phrase than meets the eye. This is actually the theme of this story, that God rests his favour on those he chooses. That's the theme here. We've sort of Christmas carded it, but it's really something profound about the nature of God's empire and his kingdom. Well, then the whole show wraps up and they, they head off and they, they are sitting there and I think they would have decided that it's too good a, a night to, <laughs> to not go and validate this sign. But the sign is not the child. The sign is that they will find the child. And as they head off, they head into the town and sure enough, they find this child in a feed trough. And the parents... This, this, this child's fresh. It's just out of the oven, if you like. And it, the child has just been born. And they, uh, they, they start saying, well, we know what this is about. Now, the very audacity of a bunch of shepherds, I'm not sure how many there are, but a bunch of shepherds crashing in on a birth scene uh, is itself a proof of the veracity of the story. What would bring shepherds away from their flocks in the middle of the night to tell a story such as this. And they crash in on this, uh, this infant birth scene, which would have been precious to the parents. And then their jaws drop as they hear that this child is none other than the, the, uh, the saviour of Israel. And <clears throat> Mary treasures these things in her heart. She's a bit of a theologian. She takes these things to heart. And uh, the shepherds then return glorifying God and they're amazed that God has chosen them to be the spokesperson of promise of this unfolding of salvation history this fold in the page of cosmic time has folded unfolded <clears throat> and they're the ones who turn the page and they regard that as quite a remarkable thing <clears throat> shepherds rejoice these are the illustrations of the meaning of Luke's Christmas. It reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul. You see, shepherds in this day, <clears throat> these were people who were drifters, pilferers. Their word was unreliable in court. They were religiously non-observant. They were excluded from Israel. But God has chosen them to be his spokesperson. The Apostle Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. 
God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The kingdom freedom of Christ subverts the coercion of empire. It makes apostles of untouchables and the despicable. That's the nature of our salvation. Not that we have something to commend us to God, but in his sovereign freedom, he's decided to bestow his love upon us. This is not about men seeking God. These shepherds weren't expecting anything. It's about God seeking men. The empire of Rome has vanished. The empire of Spain is no more. But the kingdom of Christ is still at work. You notice in the last picture we have, I focus in on the couple again. And if you looked at the large picture, there's only one character who looks back at the looker, at the painter. The only character in the story that looks back is the ox. And he's looking at us. And his eye is a lot sharper in the real picture. And he's staring at us questioningly much like my dog looks at me around mealtime. But he's looking at us and he's saying, well, the ox knows, but do you understand? Do you understand the meaning of the big picture? It's not the busyness of empire or commerce or the trade or the diversions of this life. It's of the hidden kingdom and the hidden kingdom that is still coming. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this day to celebrate the working of our great God in this world today. That as